Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. Hey, David, this is a fantastic episode with Ron Carucci, and, and we timed it really well with him coming out with his new book. So I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode today. Yeah, so Ron stepped into the trap in support of this uh, book that he recently released called To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. And it's got a lot of buzz. Uh, he starts with a simple premise, tell the truth by saying the right thing, emphasizing truth for justice, um, developing muscles needed to say and do the right things for the right reasons. Uh, he and his team conducted research for years, I think about 15 years, uh, ultimately showing that half of newly appointed executives failed in their next role. And uh, he'll talk about how there's a range of key contributors that uh, result in these dismal results. And by way of background, he's um, been in this business for 35 years, uh, helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, leadership. And he's been at it from early stage startups to Fortune 10 level uh, companies. He's been with turnarounds, new markets, uh, uh, worked with all sorts of strategic direction for companies. He, he's really a go-to guy for um, helping overhaul leadership and culture uh, and in effect redesign uh, organizations for growth. And he's done this both in the States and internationally. So highly impressive guy. He's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, his work's been featured in Fortune, the CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, uh, Business Week, I could go on and on. Uh, and he's a former faculty member at Fordham University Graduate School. Uh, so he knows his stuff. He's also done some work as an adjunct with the Center for Creative Leadership, an all-around sharp guy. Yeah, it's a couple segments in here too that I'll just want to uh, let our listeners know that, that were I thought really insightful for me especially the timing where we talked about the hybrid work environment and he shared several examples of working with leaders who had to shift their style and shift this this notion from going from hey we have a culture of purpose and belonging but when we shifted through a lot of this COVID environment and this work from home caring became a bigger element of how we care about our employees, how we show that we care with them. And he, he, he gave some really good nuggets of advice and an example of a leader he worked with that kind of moved and transformed from this culture of control to one of trust. And so I thought that was a really interesting segment in there that I hope our listeners will stick around for uh, to learn from, uh, from his experience working with these leaders. Agreed. Yeah. So Listen up, everyone. Uh, hear how he responds to the basic questions around executives' obligations to speak truth in every aspect of their leadership practice. Here's Ron Carucci. 
Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Leadership Trap. I'm so thrilled to be here with Ron Carucci. Welcome. Chris, David, thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks, Ron, for joining us. I um, really want to put an early plug in for your new book, um, which, by the way, as I was uh, looking at the title, I couldn't help myself. I assume you hear this all the time. I started off by saying, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose, as opposed to just sort of flatlining that and say, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose, which is sort of a, a, a twist on just what you're talking about. Uh, you know, how often do we uh, ourselves or others we work with say, you know, to be honest, which, what do you what do you think when you hear that term? When someone so, uh, says, so I actually, open up, I actually open up my keynotes with a whole litany of, can I be honest? I'm going to be frank. Let me be blunt. Can I be candid? Can I be honest? Scout's honor on my mother's grave. You know, oh my gosh. Swear to God. We have so many qualifiers for our honesty. Most social psychologists suggest that when people are qualified in their honesty, it means that they're either lying or that they're, they're not confident that you're going to believe them. Oh, yeah, it's so true. That that is how I always but respond when I hear that. I I chose a title that you know can't help but be coming out of the mouths of people all day long. <laughs> yeah, well said. And uh, you know, just to be a bit provocative early on, if someone says, you know, I'm not a racist, I can't help but think, well, if you had to volunteer that, then um, just as to be honest, I begin to question right away uh, whether that's an accurate statement or not. If you have to, if you have to announce it. Yes. Probably there's something going on there. Yep, fair enough. So I think it's worthwhile uh, not only mentioning the book, which again is, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, uh, justice, and purpose. Um, your tribute page warrants a call out. Uh, and if you'll indulge me, I'll read it. It's brief. Uh, your tribute page states, for all those who fight every day for a world of greater truth, justice, and purpose, for your unsung heroism, your silent suffering and sacrifice, and your inspiring example, this book is dedicated to honoring your stories so that the rest of us might, in some small way, emulate them. And then you go on to say that you dedicate a portion of your book's proceeds to two groups, which I'd love to hear a bit about. One is the Equal Justice Initiative, and the other is Ethical Systems, ethicalsystems.org. Tell us a bit of um, why you chose those organizations and how they fit so meaningfully into your research and ultimately uh, the, Berks, the book's message. I'm so happy to do that. <clears throat> um, so first, Equal Justice Initiative, you probably are familiar with Brian Stevenson's work. Um, so when people ask me, and Brian is a featured story in the book, um, when people ask me who is my hero in the world, he's always the first person I mention. Um, he has lived his life and, and worn out a purpose and dedicated his talents to something in a way that I wish the rest of us could even do fractionally. Um, hmm. His brilliance, his passion, his incredible sacrifice for something that is so painfully unjust and so right in front of our faces. And we, as three white men, um, so struggle to see, mm. um, sometimes willfully blind, sometimes not, mm. <clears throat> that his work has just moved me to such a deep level that um, I wanted to do some, something small 
um, both financially, but also to curate his story, to, um, to tell the world what a remarkable body of work he has amassed. And, and of course, we've also, if you've seen the film, Just Mercy, you know how extraordinary his story is. Um, so that's that work. Ethical Systems um, started by Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the foreword to the book, um, who wrote um, uh, The Righteous Mind and Calling of the American Mind, um, founded that organization and I'm on the advisory board of it. And it's one of the most amazing think tanks uh, housed at NYU um, of thinking about systemic um, ethics, which is what my firm Navalin you know, is we are systems engineers of organizations. And so that somebody else thought about this the way we did. I met John when I interviewed him one, my first time uh, for a Forbes article, and then we just became friends and I kept interviewing him and joined his board and continued to help and support him grow that organization. And then, you know, I worked up the courage enough to ask him if he would write the forward and he uh, graciously agreed. Yeah, nicely um, done. But, uh, which I was shocked and awed that he said yes, but like did a happy dance out the building <laughs> um, because he's so brilliant, but he's so, he's such a kind and good hearted man. That's what I think is so impressive about him, him besides his brilliance, but he has dedicated his life to as a social psychologist to shaping environments of more equity and justice and has, has thought a lot about it. And so uh, lending his voice and he's also, you know, some of his other work, the social dilemma, you probably saw that Netflix special he's in that his Atlantic article on social media. So I, I've peppered his voice throughout the book because he brings such a strong perspective that I think we all need to understand better. So for that reason, I wanted to, I didn't, nobody writes a book for money, but whatever, whatever shekels do come in from it, I wanted to make sure they went to some place that I felt was worthy of the effort of writing the book. Yeah, by the way, again, speaking of the book and Amazon, have you looked at your reviews page recently and seen how many stars out of five possible stars where it's currently sitting at the moment? Well, um, I not recently, no. <laughs> five, five stars. You know, <clears throat> I go to, uh, you know, Amazon's my go-to whenever I'm looking for potential books, whether fiction or nonfiction. And I have loads of leadership books and, and others in the um the business realm. And I just can't recall the last time I saw, at least with, you've got dozens and dozens of ratings now. So it's not as if your five best friends um, were sure to give you a uh, five-star rating, but uh, you now have uh, a substantial amount. So uh, kudos to you. It really uh, warrants uh, people getting uh, the messages you're delivering. And that's very kind of you, David, to say, and I, I certainly hope, I mean, the, the, the painful reality of the Amazon algorithm is that those reviews do make a substantial difference. Um, the reality is until you get above 100, your algorithm doesn't kick in. So I, if you two would indulge and join the, the chorus of voices, I would be grateful. Yeah. Um, I, I did learn yesterday, very um, uh, excitedly, that uh, Bloomberg Business Week announced their best books of 2021, and to be honest, was on the list. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. And, uh, and the nomination came from the Aspen Institute, which was even more. So much um, the better. That's the prestige. Great. Yeah, right. Well, um, yeah, you're on to something. I mean, think about it. Um, such a universal theme, which uh, clearly gets yep. a fresh look. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about this all the time, uh, Chris and 
Mm-hmm. I do. And I'm going to um, turn the conversation into the uh, the business setting, the corporate world. And I often note that um, there's a lot of corporate hijinks that goes on. The, it almost seems like the larger the setting, the greater the, the, the possibilities for people to sell their soul. And um, even though they're well-intentioned, good people, but in order to, quote, survive this place, they compromise their ethics and thus uh, lies take on different forms. Can you speak to that dynamic, uh, how well, you've seen it play a, out? It's a rich question, David. And the reality is people often do what you just described, often not, not even knowing it. Mm. Um, they cross lines. They never they swore they'd never cross or even get near. I, and I wanted to know, how, how does it happen? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we, I mean, we're all t- sick and tired of the Wells Fargo stories, the Toronto stories, the, you know, pick, pick, pick the culprit, right? Yeah. I, I, I was, I, I just, you know, this last week's better.com CEO doing what he did on, you know, online firing all the people. I, oh, I mean, yeah. Just, oh, my gosh. I mean, you just have to make, like, what, on, from under what rock did you crawl? Yeah. Um, Who advised so him? I, I, I hope nobody. Yeah. Um, wow. Where was HR? Um, exactly. thank, God they, thank God they fired him. Um, yeah. they, they really had no choice, right? There was, they, 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 they yeah, yeah, yeah. In the corner, HR should have gone with him. Mm. But I, so I thought, okay, how do you explain how otherwise good-hearted, well-intended people right. find themselves in these situations? So I wanted to know, could we predict it? Because if we could predict the conditions that bring people to those choices, could we prevent them? Or if we could predict the things that bring people to the the better angels of themselves, could we proliferate those? So that's what I set out to learn. So we did a 15-year longitudinal study of more than 3,200 interviews with leaders, did some really forensic uh, AI analysis using IBM Watson to really codify and quantify all that qualitative data. Um, And in fact, we were able to statistically model four conditions that multiplicably predict under what conditions people will do the right thing, under what conditions people will go to the dark side. Mm. We define honesty. So what we learned both in both, we took a, a, both a neuroscience and social science look at this. I wanted to understand what people, what's happening in people's brains when this stuff goes on and what happens in, in the in context, right? So in situ, in situ, as our social psychologists like to say, and I wanted to see it from both sides of the story. So turns out our brains are actually naturally hardwired for honesty. Um, that's our, def- our default mode. We're healthiest, we're happiest, we thrive when our brains are conditioned and um, exposed to honesty. But unlike our cell phones, our brains don't have a restore factory settings button. Uh, And so when subjected to otherwise dishonest conditions, we will succumb. Mm. Um, And we have slippery slopes. We don't have slippery ascents. And so unless one removes themselves or or is clear on the line that they need to avoid, the line just keeps moving very subtly and very slowly, like the frog in the boiling water. Um, so what we learned in the social science was that um, truth telling is very closely related both in our brains and our, our, our emotions to justice and purpose. Meaning that honesty is defined in the book as uh, truth, justice, and purpose. Say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. That is the new normal. That's the bar. That's the table stakes for being labeled as honest. You know, if you read the Atlantic article a few weeks ago, we're in a trust recession, right? Yeah. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it isn't hard to look around 18 months after a pandemic and wonder why people struggle to trust leaders, wonder why people are 
leaving uh, organizations in, in a mass exodus. They're voting with their feet. Um, and so the bar for leadership has just gone exponentially up when it comes to trustworthiness because our experience of it has gone into a free fall. And so leaders have to just accept the fact that the bar has gone up. You, your good intentions, your belief that you are a good person, your presumption of innocence um, are all very interesting. They're useless. Yeah. Um, trustworthiness is in the eye of the beholder and the yardstick is just a lot higher. Yeah, so I hear you saying that this quote, great resignation, uh, which I'm hearing more and more it's being revised to the great reassessment is in part happening for those conditions you described in which the uh, trust level to um, leadership systems and uh, business systems and, and work systems are being called into question and people are reassessing uh, where do I place myself in this? Uh, can you speak a bit more to what you're seeing in terms of either the great re uh, resignation or the great reassessment? So what I think, I mean, whatever label you give it, what I think um, is happening is organizations and people are missing each other. Or organizations are making the presumption that people are leaving for more money, for more flexibility in their work life, um, for um, better jobs. Um, there's partial truths there, but the real thing, if you look at the McKinsey research um, that I think was a great study, uh, people are leaving for two questions. One, because they want to know they matter. Mm -hmm. And two, because they want to feel like they belong. They want to have the two fundamental needs we come to work with looking to resolve. Am I important? Do I count? And do I fit? And while leaders thought it was always um, an extracurricular activity to address those needs, once I, once I got what I wanted out of you, um, th that, that contract is long dead. Um, you need to start by taking those questions off the table. People need to show up at work, never doubting that their they and their contribution uh, matter in your eye and in the eye of the enterprise, and that they, no matter who they show up as, um, all of them can show up and feel welcomed and like they belong. Um, that's when your relationship with them needs to start. If they're spending an ounce of capacity invested in wondering about those questions, that's capacity that's not going toward your organization or their performance. Um, those who are hiding in fear, those who are couching themselves, those who are feeling um, rudderless, um, insignificant, pointless, which I think our pandemic awoken within us, right? Our hunger for meaning, which was always there. I don't think the pandemic caused it. I think the pandemic revealed it. Um, if you were caught shot and you never had a way to address those questions, you're the ones people are running from in drugs. But if you're, I, I did a piece for HBR recently on who's not quitting. I went and talked to organizations who people were, were like, nobody's quitting here. And I'm like, okay, how'd you do it? And one of the things I, I talked to um, eight, six or eight ex HR executives to say, what, yeah, what I'm curious to hear your point. And what they said was, we had a culture of solidarity, purpose and belonging, right? In place already. That was that, that already would kick into gear and was ready for us to serve when we needed to go hybrid, when we needed to become agile and pivot. Um, the minute they had a flex, to caring for their employees, caring for the struggles of their family, of illnesses, of um, sick parents or sick kids. They flexed. Managers were given discretion to say, use your budgets, buy them meals, send childcare, do what you have to do, care for them. Yeah. Don't ask permission. Um, technology platforms were in place immediately. Laptops were sent to people's homes. Organizations did what they needed to do to, say, to send two unmistakable messages. We care about you. 
we need you, we want you, you fit here, what do you need? Yeah. I imagine. But, 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 but companies who respond like that didn't just produce that behavior overnight, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The companies who couldn't respond that way couldn't because they never could. And mm-hmm. all the pandemic did was expose them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that has forced them to make that a change in thinking. I'm wondering, as you were talking to different leaders, did you come across some that did make a successful successful transformation from having kind of that dip, that that type of culture, which is sometimes almost like a culture of fear a little bit, to making this change? How do you think they did it? Um, I, so I, I I have spoken to them. They, they weren't a part of that article, but I but I have recognized leaders uh, in some of my clients who were a little bit late to the game, but finally woke up and realized they have the control. And if I want this talent and if I want to be able to attract more talent, this is not my, you know, I said one CEO I'm thinking of who was a classic command and control, good hearted guy, loved and cared about the company, but sort of a down to earth cowboy kind of person um, was I want everybody in the office and we all got to be here and all that stuff. Right. And we challenged him like, this is not going to go well. And then it really didn't go well. And so now they are pivoting and coming out of it. And we're doing, doing all kinds of work to help restore trust and restore relationships. Um, but he finally got, he's like, I'm over all of it. What do we got to do? What do they, I don't care where they want to work. What, what, what do we need? So, that's a, but it's a great got, trap. <laughs> well, but he got, but he got pinned, right? Yeah. Because all of the assumptions we have about the workplace, um, and work, um, if you have not awoken to the fact that the questions of when work happens, where work happens and by whom work happens are no longer viable or really important questions, um, and got more into the focus of how work happens and why work happens. That's your job. Those are the controls you can put in place. Um, you are not qualified to be thinking about when and where it happens. Hmm. So, but here's the problem, guys, right? So here's a trap. When you as a manager think it's your job to barrier when and how, and suddenly the control you can exert over those things is no longer there, you are now faced with an existential crisis of what's my job? Mm-hmm. If I'm not managing those things, what do I do all day? Yeah, that's the breakthrough. People are saying, "Hallelujah, yeah, go figure it out and get out of my get out of my mess." I am with you, Ron. That is one of the many breakthrough awareness items that's happening. Is there's no longer the necessity, uh, the demand for work has to be done this way in this setting for this time frame. Um, and then back to what you mentioned earlier, I take. Uh, your point, I believe that this is part of honest moments that are occurring by people who now feel the confidence or the necessity on an individual and a collective basis to be honest with themselves about where they fit into their uh, decisions about work, uh, their decisions about their relationship to their boss, to the company, Um Thus, this notion of the great reassessment is beginning to emerge. But, but I'm now equating it to your thesis, which is this is a, a broad, honest moment that's happening at the most organic level. Fair to say? Uh, I, absolutely fair to say. I think people, um, you, in the book, I say you cannot be true to yourself until you're true about yourself. Hmm. Um, and this has been a reckoning uh, of truthfulness about um, who do you say you are? One of the findings in the research that is a multiplier of honesty is what I call clear identity. Be who you say you are. We make promises of leaders all day long. We have words on walls that tout missions and purposes and values. We declare things that are important to us. I value teamwork. I value open and transparency. 
whatever they are, those have become yardsticks. Those yeah. are the things people use to calibrate whether or not we are who we say we are. And when you have even one say do gap, you're you're in the red. You know, mm-hmm. leaders today, what we know about leadership today is that they you start distrusted. No longer are you respected because you have a position of authority. In fact, that's the reason you're not respected. And so today you have to start from a place of earning credibility, earning the trust of people who, even when you were their peer, they trusted you. But the minute you were elevated, just because you were elevated, um, they then become suspicious of you. And for many leaders who are rising up, that's a big shock. But you're, you're, so you're making sure that your say-do gap is a one-to-one ratio, um, that you are living by the promises that you and your organization make. And that you are asking people to tell you when you don't. Mm-hmm. My ch- simple challenge to your listeners: go and get the mission statement, the value statement, the purpose statement, the brand promise. Pick one of it. Pick one of the promises. Put it on your table at your next staff meeting and ask your team: How well are we doing embodying this? Mm-hmm. If people followed us around all day long with a video camera and video a day in the life of our team, could they use that video to train people on these on this premise? Or would people roll their eyes? Yeah. How am I doing? Do, do, I, do I set the example of these behaviors to you or do I repulse you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have a conversation about it. That's good. Here's the thing. People are telling stories about you at dinner at night mm-hmm. to their family and their spouses. If you don't know what stories they're telling, shame on you. You should get in on the conversation um, because if you're not controlling that narrative, you can be worried that the stories they're probably telling are not flattering. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious, as I think about to our listeners that are maybe in this stage of their career where they're they're moving up the ladder quickly, they're, or they're overachievers, they really want to be successful. And you've talked about the notion of power and people struggling with that. How so is our, that? Yeah. In our last book, Rising to Power, which was the 10-year study, mm-hmm. um, was a, 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 a 10-year study of executives as they rise up to senior levels. And why is it that more than 50% of them fail in the first 18 yeah. months? And why is that okay? Why? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the recruiters love it because it's an annuity um, for them. But why has everybody said, okay, 50-50 shot at somebody's career in life? Okay. That seems ludicrous to me. And so that started from a very personal place, Chris, when one of my clients fell into that trap. Um, a CEO had, we had finished a major transformation and a bunch of leaders had found themselves into bigger jobs. One of whom was the obvious haloed, fair haired boy, clearly going places. Nobody was shocked, got the big job. Nine months later, he called me, I assumed to tell me all the great things he had done, but was calling to tell me that he'd been fired and was helping, wanting my help networking. I was shocked. Two hours later, the CEO called angry and more than subtly inferring that part of the failure was my fault for not better preparing him for that bigger job, which of course, no coach wants to hear that. So I asked to come back and I said, on my own time and my own dime, could I just come, I, I wanna know how could I have, how could any of us, but me so painfully misjudged why we thought he was ready. And I wanted to know what happened here. That and that investigation led to this 10 year study because the landmines that I found that he stepped in, the utterly predictable and foreseeable traps that we, we set every day for leaders on the way up were right there hiding in plain sight. And I went back to the CEO. I said, I will take responsibility for not preparing him for all the traps he stepped in your company. You take responsibility for putting him there. Um, and and uh, Chris, it was just stunning to me. Um, we, we do it. Here's an example. We do it right from the outset. We're interviewing people for a job. And we say to them, we, so for, first of all, we're still using the two least reliable devices for selection, the resume and the interview. 
why, why science hasn't caught up with the fact that those are the least reliable devices to inform a decision of, of, of selection, but we still use them because they're comfortable. And we go through the resume and we say things like, oh my gosh, look at these incredible apps you built at US company. That's what we need. Or, wow, you turn that supply chain around. Oh my gosh, that's what we're looking for here. Or, oh my gosh, you're so creative. Look at these brands you've helped launch. That's what we're hoping for here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know what we're saying to them? What we're saying to them is you have a formula. And we want you to come and apply that formula here. We've given them permission to ignore context. So what happens? We come in, they think they have this, what we call the myth of the mandate, and start slapping on that formula. And to everyone's shock, everyone resists. So they slap harder. Everybody starts to back away. Suddenly, the halo becomes a noose. And they start realizing and saying things to their hardware manager, like, you didn't tell me it was this bad. Or, you know, and, and start blaming the process. And then suddenly, within a year, we hear the famous words, they just weren't a good fit. Yeah. Or they we've were. Seen the, we've seen the movie a hundred times. Yeah, That's they right. were enamored with the notion of, you know, we really are looking for dramatic change here. Come on in. Hey, by the way, do you think people um, are ever dishonest in interviews? Or <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Everything on that resume is accurate. <laughs> All right. Well, then I trust your research. Um, so uh, I think. I think the person who's not, that's why I think we've gone to behavioral event interviewing. That's why I think we've gone to all kinds of other more sophisticated selection devices that sidestep people's ability to embellish or lie or self-promote and just get honest, honest, honest look at them in action. We put them to work. We observe them in action with a team. We make, we make them prove their performance. Yeah. The hiring Um, moment is an artificial moment. You're not seeing people at work. It's a joint marketing session. It's showcasing. You're it's just a representative. Yeah. 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 So it is tough to project someone into a mm-hmm. role. It is very difficult through, but, and you have to meet them. You can't rely on the resume, but still no. we're not good at this. But well, the, because we have, we have so much, I mean, countless numbers of biases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we, we leaders notoriously hire in their own image. Um, you know, look, sound, smell, values, style. We're hiring from the same alma maters because we're looking for cultural fit, which is code for be like us, right? We say we want diversity and inclusion and differences and people are challenging our status quo. And then we go hire people who are just like us um, and wonder why we get the homogeneity that we get. Yep. But the reality is that unless you put people to work, put them in a problem solving meeting, put them in a meeting with their team, put them in front of the board, board or put them in front of a room, make them present, see them in action, um, put them in scenarios where they've got the force to, um, I mean, you, you can ask for the stock stories. Tell me about a time you failed and how to recover. Tell me about a challenging trade-off decision you had to make with resources. Mm-hmm. Tell me about a time when you had to give somebody disappointing feedback. I mean, oh, you can do all goodness. that and they'll have their stories rehearsed and some of them might be credible and genuine and some yeah. almost sound like they read them out of a book. <laughs> but there are ways to force the, a look at, and then here's the thing. If you can be honest and say, okay, this person brings all these things to this role. Here's the things we know they have gaps at. Let's say to them, here's the gaps we think you have. Don't try and convince us they're not gaps. It's okay that they are. We're willing to take a shot with you and hire you if you're willing to work with us on those gaps. Yep. And we're all clear. Yeah. And I think the other trap, the other trap we say that. No, you don't. And I think that, and that leads to, leads me to think about the other trap we fall into is then once we make the decision that they're on board to your whole point about what I like to call antibodies that don't 
do when you bring them on. We don't, we don't do enough to address those antibodies. And we so, don't do anything. <laughs> we come out yeah. full force. It's true. Organ rejection starts day one. Yes. Yep. Right? But the, the, the first time is where, where's the bathroom? <laughs> Organ rejection has started. Right. Yep. What meeting do I go to? Uh, you know, what does that acronym mean? Yep. Um, yeah. do, do I go to this meeting? Uh, how, how do I order my, my office supplies? Yeah. When do I get my laptop? I mean, I, I have a, we have an onboarding process we, we use as part of our, our transformation work. It's a minimum to do it well, one year. Mm. Not a week of employee orientation. Onboarding is one year and there are three types. There's social onboarding, technical onboarding, and organizational onboarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Build the community, make them technically proficient quickly, and help them navigate the place. That's good. Yeah. One, one year with met- metrics and KPIs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we, what we know is most of them go into heart failure about six months. So oh, you yeah. get them over that six month hump and get them to the one year mark, then you take the training wheels off. Yep. Most people do it in a month. Yeah. Love that. I would suggest onboarding starts the moment you have contact with even a potential individual because now Amen, David. Amen. they are gaining data input yep. uh, impressions mm-hmm. are forming so a recruiter shows up late for a meeting or uh, the information they receive is uh, inconsistent with the role and on and on and on they're already collecting data and impressions right and and likely ignoring it yeah yep. because they want for the sure. job yep yes. right so the halo effect goes into full force and they suddenly those those cues don't mean anything. Oh, it happens. Oh, that's frustrating. Yeah. But they're still in sell mode. I tell I coach people, especially executives. I, I coach people on you are in an interview process to hire your next boss. Mm-hmm. Well, interview same. well, interview them well. Yep. Do not hire somebody to be your boss that you wouldn't want to be your boss. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Well, Ron, we're a little more than halfway through. We got about fifteen minutes left, and it is time for what our listeners love to call the moral dilemma. I love it. Where that's right. We're gonna throw a challenge at you. It's a real trap. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. So I'm gonna allow uh, David here to introduce the moral dilemma. Thanks, Chris. Now I hesitate. I organ music queued up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we will fit some music in later. Some but uh, the way Chris set that up and saying there's um, there's no right or wrong answer, you may quickly come in and say, "Oh yeah, there's only one answer to this." So let's see how this plays out. Um, I'm curious to get your impressions of, you know, the the corporate condition of limiting bad news. So let's say a company's two months away from not being able to meet payroll, but they just might close a big sales deal that uh, will give them some breathing room when it comes to uh, cash on reserve. So the CEO denies that there are cash concerns and instructs all members of the management team to also deny that there are any cash issues if anyone brings this up. Now, you've got a lone wolf, mid-level manager, hasn't been there that long, so bring some courage with her, and she plans to share the truth. She's going to make an exception about the cash concerns, and she's going to share that to her team, and she re- realizes this may go viral within the company. So, how would you ca- counsel this leader? Ooh, is there such a thing as being too honest? <laughs> oh my God, I love it. So that that's actually a story in the book. Is it? Uh, it, is, it is, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's, uh, it's about um, 
major headwinds and a major crisis hitting the company and to keep it concealed or, or make it be transparent. And it's me coaching a leader on one of the values of the company is transparency. Hmm. And what does that actually mean? It was your first question, are you going to be able to pay my invoice? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I got uh, off track, Ron. Can I, can I pre-bill you? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, David, that's, that's painful. I'm, <laughs> I'm, so I, I would, in the true sense of being a coach and not giving her the answer, um, my first question is, you, so you're prepared to be fired? Is, is this really, yeah. is this, this is, so you're making this a sword to die on, you probably will die on it. If that's okay with you, let's talk about how you're going to do it. If you if you think this might go well, or somehow, um, then let me, let me talk you off that ledge, because it's not going to go well. When a CEO has said this, we, we can judge him all day long for the stupid, sheer stupidity of his decision. I, I'm happy to give you all the evidence that you would need to suggest yeah. what, a mor- what a moron he is. But that's not the question we're asking here. Right. The question we're asking is, are, are you willing to, to be unemployed for whistleblowing or leaking this information? Um, you, you might become like the woman at Facebook who gets a lot of attention and offers and whatever and goes to, goes to testify on Capitol Hill and whatever, but you might not. You can hope that there's a video that goes viral and makes you, gives you your moment of fame and a son for being the whistleblower. But those people don't often become heroes. Whistleblowers often get shot. Uh, I'm sorry for that. I think it's terrible. Um, so let's ask the question, could you sleep with yourself if you didn't do it? And let's talk about that maybe there's something else you can do instead, right? So you, 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 what is it about participating in the concealment you've been asked to conceal that is morally violent to you, that is unacceptable? Um, is it just because you, it, it offends you and you just want to put a big middle finger up at them? Or is this truly a moral outrage for you that you really, it will violate your own principles if you participate? W- what level of offense are we talking about? Let's clarify that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Because if it really is just, you know, my sense of irreverence that just wants to, sh- I'll show, I'll show the man, mm-hmm. then that's your own immaturity and you deserve to, you, you can go ahead and do it, but you deserve, you deserve to be fired. Mm-hmm. If it is in fact some deep moral sense of, um, of, of uh, offense to you, a, a deep sense of violation to the values you hold dear, um, let's talk about that. And is the way to be true to those values only um, uh, leaking this? Um, it, are there, uh, let's, before we decide career suicide is the only option here and you're going to commit career Harry Carey, could we, say, could we look for alternatives to say, here's how I could embody those values and feel good about it um, without that? Um, and if she says, no, I'm not open to that at all, then I'd say, okay, here's... Here's how you can at least make sure you care for the people you're going to conceal. Because rec- recognize you may be solving one transparency problem, but you're going to cause sheer panic for the people. Because the very first question is, why is she telling us you're not the boss? Um, uh, they're going to question, is she crazy? Because because they would have told us if this was true. So you're going to get put in a, pinned into a box of you're insane or making this up. Or uh, once people believe you, they're going to back away because they know you're about to get detonated. Right. So you're going to put, but you may think you're helping people by giving them two months of, of options to prepare for, you know, career uh, for financial Armageddon, which by the way, that big sale might come through. Right. Yeah. It is stupid to bet on it. That was stupid. But if it comes through, you're really going to look up. Yeah. In the startup world, it's the next um, 
round of funding. Because uh, right. uh, they have so many I, startups. I know, our series, I know our Series B is coming through any minute. That's right. That's right. And our burn rate, yeah, it's close, but we're good. Yeah. We'll get the money. Yeah, thank you for uh, really thinking that through out loud. Unfortunately, there are not enough of you to go around for all those people who are pondering wanting to do the right thing and don't have the luxury of your sound counsel. Uh, thus, we recommend get the book. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. You didn't hesitate on that one. So, uh, <laughs> Please. Let me, uh, let me frame this conversation a bit of a different way. Love to get your perspective. How do you see an environment of love impacting one's courage to be honest? My, what a fabulous question. Mm. Um, so I think that, um, you know, I, th- I love the title of um, Marshall and Francis book, Work is Love Made Visible. Because uh, I believe that's the definition of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who think of love as an odd concept uh, for the workplace are, are truly um, misguided. Um, of course, there are certain types of love that don't belong in the workplace. But I'm talking about the basic human need of exchanging joy, exchanging delight, exchanging pleasure, exchanging kindness. Um, leadership at its core, done well, is an act of love. Um, and if you don't understand that, you shouldn't be leading. Um, the, what would it say of our workplaces where the place we spend two thirds of our waking hours was devoid of the most basic need we all have? Scary. And so we are all looking for love in the workplace. We're looking for it in forms that we, don't, we shouldn't be getting it at home or in our marriages or, or romantic relationships, but we are looking for forms of love and attachment and care and regard and dignity and honor. Um, and those should be foundational in our workplace. Um, so I think that if, if those experiences are not there, that may explain some of your own sense of emptiness, your own sense of longing, your own sense of misgiving about yourself, your own self-doubt. Um, if you have no place to bring those things into a community of people who can hold you and hold those needs and care for you in them. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. If you've if you got more, I, no. I love your thoughts. Well, what I was going to do is maybe uh, have a bit of a tangential tie to this. And that is from your research, do you show that leaders often grow into their authentic, honest selves uh, that they have to kind of mature into um, uh, leadership adults? Uh, and then if they're fortunate <laughs> enough to have love surrounding them, they bring the confidence. Well, they'll certainly do better. But, 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 I, but I do think is that um, when they get to my couch, virtual couch, I'm seeing all the places where they didn't, they, they weren't loved. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm seeing the narratives from childhood. I'm seeing the trauma. I'm seeing all the places where, you know, where they, they show up in my, in my office with what I call coaching resistant behaviors. The inexplicable inexplicable, quote unquote, angry outbursts, the freezing up in hard decisions, the over-accommodation and indecisiveness, um, the chronic behaviors that despite lots of technique and effort um, are behaviors that are resistant to technique because in fact, their origins lie at much deeper places. And so we have to go dig deeper to find out the origin narratives that taught you that this behavior was a safe place for you um, and, and, and re-script that narrative. Hmm. Um, I, I do think, in fact, that is how you grow into your own maturity. Leaders have to grow into their imperfections that they spend so much time hiding yeah. um, and masking 
and realize that the hiding that they're doing that makes them feel safe is actually one of the most dangerous places they can be because they're alone. Their vulnerabilities, their weaknesses, their humanity is their greatest source of credibility. Mm-hmm. Because once exposed, people can't hurt them, hurt you with them. Yeah. And once you can tell people about where you're broken before they have to tell you, or they have to wonder if you even know, um, you can get past it. So your imperfections, bringing the, all of you to work is one of the greatest gifts and signs of love you can give people because what you're saying to them is it's okay to be you too. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of leaders, I think it's, this is an important trap because a lot of, I think a lot of leaders don't recognize that. And so they think they're fooling everybody else around them, but they don't realize that there is so much chatter that everybody else can see oh, it. Absolutely. <laughs> and and what they think they're doing is that they, they think they're purchasing love, they're purchasing loyalty, purchasing respect, mm-hmm. purchasing um, intimacy by bribing people, coddling people, looking perfect, being the answer ATM yep. for people. Um, and, and thinking that this polished version of people that looks confident and all put together is what people want. It's mm-hmm. the last thing people want. Yep. Um, because it puts them on eggshells. And what it says is, what you're telling me is I can't fail. I can't be imperfect. I can't show you my weaknesses. Right. So if I, if you're modeling to me what it means to hide yourself, and I don't even know what it is you're hiding, but I know it's something, that what you're telling me is I should be hiding too. Mm-hmm. So now yeah. you've told your team, just bring 48% of you to work. That'll be fine. Yeah. And it's okay to hide information, but I don't want you to show me the bad information. <laughs> right. Just tell me what I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and it becomes ahead, an endless Mark. amount of hiding and then and if you're going to hide, you have to do the other thing, you have to blame, right? Yeah. So we have to have scarecrow arms to make sure that <laughs> well, the entire goal is deflection. Right? I'm trying to deflect things, attention away from me. Yep. Um, Major but then I go home at night feeling lonely, isolated, um, sad, depressed, anxious, um, uh, insignificant, unseen, and questioning whether I bring any value to people. Mm-hmm. Well, how could you find anything but that? All you brought to work was an illusion of yourself. Yep. Yeah, I'm seeing the emergence in the leadership development world in the recent months about the criticality of managers showing their vulnerability because there's this fragile psyche that's out there, as we know, in the workplace. And thus, we need to give leaders license to be um, uh, very much um, in in their own moment with the employees. And, and that's and, okay. And, and David, it's an art. I don't think the pandemic caused all of the fragile self, mental health that we're seeing. I think it revealed it. Um, and I think I think it's great that mental health is having its moment now in, in mainstream conversations and that your anxiety, your depression, your 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 well-being is now my concern as a leader. The hard part about vulnerability and being your authentic self is is there a, is there a version of that that's not helpful? Is it okay for a leader to just break down and start crying in the middle of a meeting? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, is it a leader okay for a leader to just completely lose their temper and lose their shit? Pardon my French. When they're angry, is that really uh, you know? So, so what's the authentic, truly authentic, not contrived version of you that doesn't lose your team? Right. There are many, many forms of vulnerability and authenticity that will garner a tremendous amount of loyalty and respect and regard and commitment to work because you're now committed to them. There are some versions of that that may scare people, that may um, cause them angst. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the art of what, how, not that it has to be performance art, 
but how is it that I bring the, the, those bare parts of me in a way that can be embraced and tolerated? Because I'm still the leader. I'm not stepping out of my leadership role. I can't, if, I, if I separate my humanity from my leadership, that's dangerous, right? You can't say to somebody, mm-hmm. give, me a, give me a moment not to be your boss. Mm-hmm. That, that's like the, the judge saying the jury will disregard that last statement. <laughs> there's no, there's no redo there. Yeah, so yeah. there is some really important thoughtfulness and intentionality that has to go behind. Uh, and sometimes you have like 0.08 seconds to think about that mm-hmm. when a moment happens you didn't expect, when you get yeah. a bad email or some bad news or the 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 crisis happens or whatever the moment is, or somebody comes to you with a major failure um, yeah. or disappointment. Yeah, and so I, I, with my coaching clients, I rehearse those moments. I, I never let them go into those moments. We rehearse them, you know, in our coaching sessions. Okay, you've just got this email. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Or you're in a team meeting, and this happens. How's it going to yeah. go? Great value as a coach. And you know, uh, if it, uh, in some cases I'll say that's a place where it's okay to cry. That's a place where you probably should not cry, but you can show emotion this way. Mm-hmm. And and because you know. These situations are multi-level and complicated. So you know, you're going to be feeling multi- multiplicative things in those moments: anxious, fear, angry, concern, you know, rage, um, relief. Well, and I, I think what well, a lot. How do you package those in a way that lets you be an authentic human without alienating the team in a way that has them go home and go, "Oh shit, I better change jobs." Well, I think a lot of leaders don't realize that what's happening in that moment is the people, the, the people watching, observing in the room. Are, are trying to interpret what's happening. They're trying to make sense, right? And they don't know. So the best leaders I've worked with, and this is where I spend a lot of time coaching leaders on, is, is to share your intentions, share what's, what you're struggling with. Because all they see is an emotion. They see the nonverbal, and then they're trying to interpret it. And you have to think out loud. And the best leaders have become really good at that and saying, hey, here's why I'm banging my fist on the table. Yep. It sets all of the ease. And then everybody else starts banging their fists on the table too. Cause like, Absolutely. Oh, now I see why. <laughs> Absolutely. I call, I, I call that leading out loud mm-hmm. and never leave anything for rent. Never leave, never leave anything open into interpretation. Yeah. T- tell them how to encode what you're doing. Yep. Um, and they can choose to believe it or not, but at least if you've been, if you disclose, this is why this is happening. This is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, they can make their own choices, but if they, if you tell them nothing, they're going to make something up. Yeah. They'll often join you. Yep. So at the risk of being snarky, When's the most critical time for a leader to be dishonest with his or her employees? Never. There's never a time. There's never a time to be dishonest. There are ways to tell truths and times to tell truths um, and times to um, withhold or delay, but there's never a time to be dishonest. Yeah, I think that's the tricky part of, of avoiding the trap or trying to avoid it is that timing of the truth. Mm-hmm. How much of the truth do you do disclose? It's really difficult in business when there's a lot of confidential information. A lot of leaders struggle with that. There, there are times not to panic people. There are times um, not to disclose certain things. That's called management discretion. That's called, Now, <coughs> an impending crisis is stupid to withhold because the minute people find out, the first question they're going to have is, how long did you know? Yeah. And if you say more than five minutes, done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the only reason leaders are dishonest with people is in their own interests. It's their own comfort. They justify it as I don't want to hurt your feelings, you know, whatever it is. But it's all self-soothing behavior. It's all self-protective behavior. There's nothing kind or caring 
or thoughtful or leaderly about dishonesty in any form whatsoever. Yeah, I love the, in fact, we should end on that. That's a beautiful way to, um, to close out this discussion. Uh, we barely got into it as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure Chris would say the same thing. Uh, really appreciate you sharing your perspectives um, on the leadership trap. Where would you uh, tell people to go to find out more about you and the information that's out there through your books, uh, your firm? Uh, wh- where would you guide our listeners? So I hope people will come and keep talking. Um, they can come to Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Okay. Um, and at that website, we've got an incredible treasure trove of resources. We have some free eBooks you can download on leading change or being in a virtual workplace or designing your organization. We have blogs, we have a great video series, we have online courses. So it's a treasure trove of leadership resources. If you wanna know more about the book, you can come to tobehonest.net um, where you'll find, um, so To Be Honest is a book of heroes. It's a book of all the people that inspired me that we wanna emulate. We did a TV series. So when I did the interviews for the book, I actually videoed them. I recorded oh, them. cool. Where do we find that? So the TV series, you can find it on Roku okay. uh, or you can find it at the website, tobehonest.net. The TV series is called Moments of Truth. Beautiful. And there are 15 episodes and you can meet Amy Edmondson and Jonathan Haidt and Rob Bellot and you know all the heroes uh, in the book whose stories I was, uh, Hubert Jolie from Best Buy, um, the leaders that I was so fortunate to, whose stories I got to curate. Um, you can see the behind the scenes conversations that led me to the, the book. Um, there's also a free assessment called How Honest Is My Team? You can download that and see how much of a skinny you're really getting from your team. And yeah. there's a video webinar there. So and a bunch of articles and um, podcasts. Uh, so lots of stuff about the book. It doesn't excuse you from having to buy it, but hopefully it will make it will make your appetite even stronger to want it to run or read it. Nicely stated. Yeah, you represent um, yourself well. I think people are compelled to uh, to seek this out. So um, again, thanks. Keep fighting the good fight, the honest fight, and we're followers from here on out, and we'll pass on um, your story. Dave, Chris, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Ron. Okay, cheers. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.